Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Your husband or wife, what do you want for dinner? And they look at you and they say, Food. <laughs> that does not help 
me at all. I am in a worse position now than I was before. It happens to me sometimes when I teach other places. And I'll say, what do you want me to teach on? And they look at me and say, the Bible. <laughs> I was like, man, narrow it down a little for me, help me out. So then I can come up with a game plan. So we spent the last six or so months as a staff kicking around how we want to define discipleship. And please hear me, we're not redefining it. We're just putting buckets to the broad, right? We're adding specificity so that we can look at how we're doing and, and say, hey, where are we strong? Where are we weak? Where are we going? And so this has been about a five, six month process. And so today we're going to talk about why we do what we do. And then we're going to roll out kind of our definition, if you want to, our words around what discipleship is. And so let's kick right into it. Let's start with why we do what we do. Then we'll walk around some tables together and come back and we'll wrap it up with our definition of discipleship. Uh, the first thing we said when we got together about discipleship is it intrinsically kicks against some cultural values that we share. So we started by saying discipleship is an active process. So when we talk about following Jesus, there are certain things we need to know, and it begins with this idea that we think discipleship is an active process, much like our lighting system at Crossroads. So we... And in talking about that, kind of what we decided was it kicks against a, cult, a couple cultural norms, you know? So I think culturally we value or are growing to value a couple things that fly in the face of discipleship. I think as a culture we value what's easy. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it's a value. There are certain things that are easy and good and certain things that are easy and made harder because they're good. For example, I actually last week had to go to the bank. Like, I had to walk inside of a bank. I have not done that in probably five years. I felt lost. I talked to a friend of mine who said that she had not been inside of a Kroger in two years because of click lists, right? We value what's easy. And that's not a bad thing. The problem is there are certain things in life that aren't easy, like marriage and parenting. There are certain things in life that if you try and make them easy, become worse. And so we started by saying, if we're going to talk about discipleship, we have to know that it is not a passive process where we park and we honk and people bring disciple things to us. It's one where Jesus calls us into action. We say it every week at Crossroads before the sermons that are going to be getting shorter, I'm told. We, we start by saying, hey, you're here today and God is here today. And we start by praying because your job, if you show up here, is not just to be a lazy listener, but to engage to as the Holy Spirit shapes and molds your spirit into the image of Christ with the words that we talk through, that paint a picture of the character of God. So we call people into active participation in God's process of discipleship. That's what Jesus did too. From the very beginning, when Jesus started walking and talking and telling people about his God, he, he called a group of men together and said, follow me and learn what it looks like. In Matthew 4, we see Peter on the scene. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, follow me. He says, I will make uh, you out to fish for people, or how it's said other places, I will make you fishers of men. The first thing he does for Peter is he doesn't say sit and watch, he says come and engage. Uh, about a year and a half later, he's with his disciples, and they go off in this boat, the storm at the Sea of Galilee. It's a really popular story in the New Testament. And they look out in the middle of the storm, and they see this dude walking on the water, and they're terrified because I would be too. And, and they call out, they say, Jesus, is that you? And Peter says, Lord, is it you? If it's you, tell me to come down onto the water. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, come. 
walk on the water with me. And why that's important is because from the very beginning, when he called Peter through how he's leading Peter through what he's going to call us to do, he calls us into a faith that asks us to engage alongside of, not sit and see. He says that discipleship starts not with what's easy, but it starts with us being engaged throughout the process. He calls us to participate. And sometimes we don't value that as much as we used to. We live in a culture that values the easy over the active. And so we have to understand that discipleship fundamentally is opposed to that. It's not something that just happens when we sit. There's a tension here that, that I really love because we're a grace-based church. And what that means is that God does things that we can't do. God loves us not because we bring anything to the table. And so there's this tension between our activity and God's doing this that I can't give you a clear cut defined answer on because it's something I don't know all the way. And the fact that I don't know it just shows that God's bigger than me. I'm okay with that. I'm gonna keep exploring, but I'm okay saying I don't know. And so we live in this tension of discipleship, of the grace of God going before us, helping us, encouraging us, giving us what we need, and also actively participating with. One doesn't nullify the other. One author said it like this, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. So we walk in the space where we participate, engage, and try, and the Holy Spirit leads us and grows us. It's this beautiful tension that we, and hopefully we lean into and we grow and we do. So we say discipleship then is an active, and the second word we use there is process. And so I think as a culture, we value the easy, but also as a culture, we really, really value the instant, right? We really value the instant I have a one-year-old. I used to care what food tastes like. Now I just care that food is present, right? Just to get her to stop crying a little bit when we feed. I think that I watch TV shows about people that lose 72 pounds in 72 hours. I see people fall in love in a really beautiful place with other beautiful people in 30 days. And I think all these things that are incremental happen instantly in our culture. And I think discipleship flies in the face of that. I think when we talk about how we follow Jesus, the way we talk about it matters, so we set expectations. It is something we engage in. It doesn't just happen to us. And also, it's something that is a process. It's a grind. And that's not bad, that's beautiful. It's a grind. So the problem is we sell discipleship as an overnight experience, as one camp eye after the next, again and again and again. If we sell discipleship as these euphoric moments of emotion, we miss out on how God is building and doing in the everyday like marriaging and parenting. There's beauty in the everyday, you know? And so we see a process that God has outlined that isn't just passive, but it isn't also instant. It takes time. It kicks back against the instant culture and says there's beauty in the incremental. This is discipleship. So in those moments when we feel like we're not going anywhere, instead of feeling like we failed, we know that there's always tomorrow. If everything falls apart this Sunday morning and our lights stop working, there's next Sunday. I'll show up if you will, too, you know? It's the idea that we buy into the process of, and that's encouraging if we understand the scope. But if we sell discipleship as something that happens overnight or one-time decisions or walk down the aisle or, 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 then we're severely disappointed when we don't get to where we think we're going to get to in 24 hours. Jesus says to these people, walk with me for years and learn. Years and learn. See what I do and how I live. Discipleship is a process that calls us into the incremental, and it's difficult, and that's okay, because things that are hard oftentimes are worth 
doing, you know that to be true, and so do I. And Jesus says, follow me. It's going to be difficult, but it's good, and you were built for it. And so, as you see, one of the main ways that we live out discipleship is, is through small groups. Because we believe that you grow in spaces where you're known. That's what we say again and again and again. But more than that, we believe that because I think that's how God built the world. One of the other things that we believe as a culture is individualism is next to holiness. And that's not necessarily true. God created out of a relational capacity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit acting in perfect harmony. And then he gave relationships to Adam and Eve. In the New Testament alone, the word one another is one word in the Greek. You see it a hundred times in 94 verses. The New Testament is about living out the ways and rhythms of Jesus in the first century world. And over and over again, it seems that all the writers are saying, you do this thing, you're called the discipleship of me. But it's in the context of we, that you're called to be a disciple with the people around you. And that's a beautiful grace, because I need them. I need people that I know and trust to tell me that I'm loved and to tell me that I'm valued and to remind me that Jesus is worth it. To remind me of the bigger picture when the pain limits my perspective. I need people around me. Sometimes, be honest, when I'm being honest with myself, I need other people. And that's the perspective that the scriptures paint about discipleship. The beauty of the grace of others as we try and look more like Jesus. And so, at Crossroads, that's why we do small groups. That's why we do it. To remind us that we can't do life alone. And so this morning, we have tables set up, and we're going to move into this section now. We have tables set up all throughout the room, and, and they represent different kinds of small groups. We have home groups and men's and women's groups and young family groups and single groups and student groups, and I'm a little colorblind, so they all look like the same color, and it's just cruel, but if you're not, everybody, we have um, the colors up on the screen here, and so we're going to take about, I don't know, probably 10, 12, 15 minutes until it starts getting awkward, much like group prayers, and we're going to walk around, and here's the deal. You're one of two or three kinds of people this morning. You're one... An extrovert saying, this is the most amazing Sunday. I get to walk around and talk to my friends. Two, you're an introvert, and you're saying, this is my dark, dark space, and I don't want to hear Just put your head down, close your eyes, and say amen if anybody walks up to you. Uh, three, uh, you're probably saying, hey, I'm in a small group. I don't need this. And here's where I push back on that. Um, we don't do this every Sunday. We, we do this once a year, and I think it's worth it. So if you're in a small group already, walk around and talk to your friends or talk to somebody you don't know about how other people, groups, has influenced your desire, your passion, your love, your spiritual life. If you don't have a group, meet people, grab the cards on the table. They meet at different times and spaces and places in our community and learn something and find a group because it's worth it because that's how we grow. Um, and if you're an introvert and you don't do any of those things, that's just fine, right? Um, maybe look up some stats on how the Cowboys are going to dominate Miami in about 45 minutes, okay? Any of those things. But we're going to take about 10 minutes. Get up, walk around, meet some people. There are donut holes because we're not about bribery at Crossroads for the gospel. All right? Go and do it. We'll kick it back here in about 10 minutes. You'll see a video that will call you back. We're going to talk about, as we did at the beginning, so we're defining discipleship today for CBC. We're adding buckets to a broad conversation so that we can set goals together. And we started this conversation with the idea that discipleship kicks back against some of the cultural norms or values of ease and instant and said that it is actually very different than that, that it is a process that we plug into and that it's one that we join in as God is working in and through us. It's an active process. And so that active process, I think, has, we think, has three different buckets to it. 
In the first room, we see if we're going to define discipleship, looking more like Jesus, is if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's an active process to know yourself. Let me talk about what that looks like a little bit. Um, I think that one of my favorite stories in the entire New Testament is Jesus when he's, he's actually eating dinner with some, with some, um, some tax collectors. And you probably know the story, it's in Mark 2, and tax collectors, if you didn't know, were really looked down upon in the first century uh, world, the Jews. They were oppressed, the whole Jewish people at the time, by the Romans, and tax collectors actually took money from their own people in a nationalistic culture. They took money from their own people to give it to the Romans that oppressed their people, and in the middle of it, they got rich. So they were seen as the worst of the worst. Jesus, who starts talking about the ways of God, he says, I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna eat with these people. And he had some religious zealots, some Pharisees that were walking by, and they saw Jesus eating with these tax collectors. And and I think they looked at Jesus and said, If you value what we value, if you know the God that our nation follows, how can you, how can you sit with these people and eat with them? They were saying, We are better than those people. How can you be there and say that you follow the God that I in the verse that sums the whole thing up, he looks at these religious zealots in Mark 2, and he says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Why I love this verse is you probably identify as either a Pharisee or a tax collector. I've been told I'm more of a tax collector in my life. Why I love this verse is it reminds me that the beginning, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of looking more like Jesus, is acknowledging that you need him. If you don't acknowledge that you need Jesus in your life and in your world, then you will never begin to look more like him. The beginning of the kingdom of God and acknowledging that we need the influence of God in our lives. Jesus, when he's talking about the ways and values of his kingdom, his, his rule and his reign, his influence in Matthew chapter 5, which we spent last fall going through, he begins his talk on this mountain to all these people by saying, if you want to know what God's ways and rhythms and family is like, it begins like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven belongs to them of understanding discipleship is knowing that you need Jesus. Knowing that there's things that he brings that I don't have. Knowing that the world is broken and I can't fix it and I believe that he will one day. Knowing that Jesus, in Jesus, there's hope that I don't have without. He says it in Luke chapter 9 as he's talking through about a year and a half later, he's talking through what it looks like to follow him, to be a disciple and he looks at his disciples and he says if anyone wishes to come to me, he must deny himself. Take his cross up daily and follow me. The act of discipleship is every single day, not one time, every single day recognizing our need for God. And unless you know that you need God, you won't turn to God. You won't look more like Jesus in the first place. Spurgeon, the pastor, says, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. And what it doesn't mean is everything is bad. What it means is everything is empty. It's not ultimately our best good. And here's the deal. If you go to some theological circles, they'll call this the depravity of man, meaning that we can't save ourselves, and we need God to do that for us. And I, I agree with that. I agree that Jesus came to do something I can't do, and I'm saved not by my actions or merit or that I prayed three times yesterday or didn't pray any the day before. I'm saved because of what Jesus did. And grace would say that I can't earn any more love of God tomorrow because of my righteousness today, because I don't define my righteousness. Jesus does. It's comforting. It's reassuring. 
And what he's going to say here is that the first thing of discipleship, we begin by knowing that we need God. But too often, far too often, when we talk about this as followers of Jesus, we camp down on the awfulness of man. And we forget the second half of that sentence. We camp down the fact that I'm horrible and bad and cruel. We eeyore ourselves to death. And what we don't realize is in talking about our depravity and our depravity only, we're just talking about pride in different languages because it's still all about us. We understand that we're not good enough because it always points back to the fact that God is. We don't culminate the conversation on shame. We actually point it towards joy and hope. That's the gospel. And so it's an understanding that we need God because he's better and because he's good. If we're going to be disciples, we need to understand our need for God who gives us hope. We said um, last fall that consistently reminding ourselves of our unworthiness only leads to a daily dependence on God's importance in our lives. So if we're going to chat about what discipleship is, it begins with us understanding our position in relationship to God, our need in relationship to what God brings. And then second, I think there's a little more depth than just knowing that you need God. It's, it's literally knowing yourself, and that's really important, because you bring to the Bible, and you bring to this church on Sunday morning, and you bring to your family, and you bring to your experience with Jesus, you bring your history, and you bring your baggage, and you bring your goods and bads. I know I do too. And you have to know that before, or as you're engaging and following Jesus. There's a a story that I've said a few times before that I love. I read it a few years ago, and they talked about the American individualism a little bit. And how highly responsible and individualistic we are as a people. And they told two groups of people, I believe it was a, a Russian group and an American group, the story of the prodigal. And that story is the one where a, a young man went to his dad, who was very rich. And he said, I want my inheritance now. And in that time, if you said that to your dad, you literally were saying to him, it would be better for me if you were dead. He said this to his father, to gut punch in any culture at any time. And his dad said, that hurts, but sure, I'll give you the money. And he did and the kid goes away, and the way that I heard this growing up, was taught this growing up, studied this growing up, was he was irresponsible, he didn't know what he wanted, and he blew all his money on lasciviousness, and, and he had to sleep with some pigs, and then they came running home. They asked the group of Russians, why did this kid, you know, what happened to this kid, and what, why did what happened happen to this kid? And there's a line in there, in the prodigal, that I honestly, honestly can say that I didn't really know existed. There's one phrase in there that says, and a great famine hit the land, and then it says, and he lost everything he had. And because in the early 1900s, I believe it was, the Russians experienced a great famine, they came back, and instead of saying like the American group, he lost it because he's an idiot and irresponsible, they said he lost it because there's this famine that he can't control, that it's not his fault at all, right? My point there is simply, the lens from which we look at the scripture sometimes influences how we see God. And so if we're going to talk about discipleship, I think we have to have conversations, probably in groups, about our baggage and what hurt us in the past and how we push through those things. And is that true or is that not true about the God that we read in the scriptures? Because too many times I've said God's a good father and I've heard people look at me and say, I didn't have a good father. I don't know a God that can love me like that. Too many times I've seen the baggage that we bring because we come from a broken world impact how we see a good God. And so what we start with, when we talk about discipleship, fundamentally we say, hey, you have to know yourself if you're going to be a disciple because you've got to know that you need and you have to know where you came from to clearly see God. But the beauty of that is every time we look deeper at ourselves and we see that we need God more and we finish the second half of that sentence and we say, because God is good, it pushes us 
to, the, to another bucket that we put on discipleship, which is not just to know ourselves, but to know God. So it's an active process to know ourselves and to know God. And when we say know God, it means clearly that we want to know about the God in the Bible. John 8, Jesus looks at his, his people who believed in him and said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's saying, live by the words I give you. The middle name in our church is Bible. What that means is, spoiler alert, we're going to open the thing up every single Sunday. And we do it because we believe, I believe, this is the most accurate depiction of the character of God that I'm going to find anywhere else. And I want to know that God. I want to know who he is. I want to know what he's done. I want to know what he did a couple thousand years ago, hoping that translates to future faithfulness. When I doubt it, I want to know God. But in a culture that values knowledge, sometimes we forget that knowing God isn't simply being first in Jesus' jeopardy. We're not after only information. We're after transformation. And if knowing about God doesn't lead to life change, then we're wasting our time. And so we believe that knowing God isn't simply knowing about, but it's experiencing his influence in our world. And we say that every Sunday morning. Right after we say, you're not just going to sit there and listen, you're going to engage with us. I stand up here in front of you and I say, we will not only know God by knowing what the scripture says, but we will know God fully by experiencing his influence in our world. Because that's what the term means in the scriptures when it says no captivates all of us. And so in the Hebrew, you couldn't just know the answer and not have it impact your life. And they would say you didn't fully know. It goes back to the example we used when we talked about it in May, which is I, before my kid came, I read all the books, like all the books, all the books. I knew everything about parenting. You know what changes that? Having a child, okay? <laughs> like without a doubt, I could give you the answer to everything, but what I thought I knew, I didn't know because I didn't experience any of it. Eugene Peterson is going to go on to say, preaching is proclamation, God's word revealed in Jesus. But only when it gets embedded in conversations and a listening ear and responding tongue does it become gospel. Gospel means good news. One other author I'd like to say, you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you're willing to put into practice. So we think discipleship is knowing yourself and knowing God, knowing the answers about God, but also letting those answers permeate our lives and influence our world. You can't say you know God if that doesn't happen. And then finally, that leads us to this last one. That leads us to knowing ourselves and knowing God, and then also making his name known or making him known. I think this last one uh, sometimes has gotten a little bit of a bad rap, I think. I see that phrase, and, and it's kind of a churchy phrase, and that's okay. Um, it's kind of a churchy phrase for evangelism. And, and let me tell you something, I uh, minored in evangelism in college because I went to a special college at Moody Bible Institute, and um, I used to go to these mission things once a week. We worked in the community, and based on your degree, you had to do different kinds of ones, and if you missed one, you had to do open-air evangelism um, in Chicago. And uh, you'd go and sit in the tunnels where the trains came in, probably during rush hour, and you'd either draw this thing on a whiteboard or you'd hand out tracts and stop people. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I think God uses that for good, but it is awkward, okay? Like, let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. It is really, really awkward to stop people when they're on their way home and be like, do you have a second to chat about this little book that was illustrated in 1965? You know, it's not usually the best way to start a conversation, but God uses it. And so when I think about making his name known, I, I initially go to that kind of evangelism. 
And I don't think that's the picture that the scriptures paint. So you got to know a little bit about, when we talk about making his name known, you have to know a little bit about the character of God here. I got a text this week on Thursday. It's from a friend of mine who's in a Bible study. First of all, I'm a very bad millennial. I am bad at texting. You can text me. I might hit you back like next Thursday, okay? Um, don't take it personally. I'm just terrible at it. And so she sent me a text and said, hey, my Bible study is doing this study. And one of the questions that was asked was, why did God create? And, and the answer they gave was that God created because he's a creative God. And I said, huh, I'm texting this. I said, I love when people ask me deep, deep, deep questions over text message, you know? It really allows for clarity of thought. Um, and uh, I said, well, let me try to answer it in a couple different ways. And one of the things I said was, you know, I think that's true. So why did God create? Because he's creative. A absolutely. Because we know he's creative because he created, and God only acts inside of his nature because nothing can manipulate God because of all the omnis you want to fill in the blank to. Powerful, present, all those things, knowledgeable. So sure, God created because he's creative, and that is a why, but not the ultimate why. There's a bigger, better why. It's like now that my kid's one years old and she eats string cheese, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that part of why I wanted to have a kid was so I could be a 35-year-old culturally accepted man that ate string cheese in public. That stuff's awesome, you know? But there's a better why behind there that I want to share the love that I have with this child and that she redefines every day my capacity for those things. I think what we have to understand about God is that he created because ultimately the existence of the God that we know in scriptures shares goodness. His goodness overflows, and because his goodness overflows, it created on the it painted on the canvas of creation, and he wanted to share that with us. And we see that in our intended purpose too. God said, when I created you, you're the best good. I gave this world to you so that you might reflect my goodness to everything else. That's what it means to be made in his image, that we might point people as, as made in his image back to the initial source in the first place. So when God created, he did it so that because his goodness overflows onto other stuff and other things. And ultimately, that's going to lead to him being more glorified. But if him more glorified is the ultimate good, then everything benefits from it. So when we ask the question about what discipleship is, and when we say that it's the process of making his name known, what we mean by that is really simply we want people to see the overflow of God's goodness in their lives, because that's what he did for us. We want people to see that there's hope in Jesus, to see that there's love and compassion and forgiveness in a broken world that often seems way too cold. And that's what Jesus says to his disciples. At the end of his time with them, in John 20, he's about to go back, be with the Father. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As I stepped into your brokenness, step into the brokenness of others so that people might see the goodness overflowing of a God who didn't have to use you but does anyway. He says in Corinthians, Paul writes, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We are called to be sharers of God's goodness as it overflows in our hearts and mind. And we do it all the time. If you eat a really good meal or go to a really great concert, you're going to tell the people you love about it. Nobody posts pictures from Taco Bell and says, this, go. You know? We are meant to overflow the goodness of God into the spaces and places around us. So when we say make God's name known, that's what we mean. <laughs> that as we live intentionally with purpose that reflects the ways of God, as we recognize that we need the ways of God, as his influence builds, we hopefully have other people see it in our marriages and in our parenting and in our schools and in our work and in our churches. So it's a 
beautiful natural reaction to understanding and knowing God. As disciples, sharing what God is doing in our lives is the natural outworking of an increased understanding of God's presence, of God's goodness, and the natural overflow of his influence. It's something we do because we know that God is good. David Platt says, making disciples of Jesus is the overflow of delight in being disciples of Jesus. So when we talk about discipleship, we have these three things that I think the confluence of comes together. This knowing ourselves and, and knowing God and then, and then making his name known as influence felt in the world around us. And when those three things happen, we have a fun little graph up here, a uh, little Venn diagram for you. When those things happen, I think that's where discipleship happens at its greatest efficiency and effectiveness. And you'll notice um, my graphics person is still out on maternity leave, so you get this bad boy by me, everybody, you know? <laughs> but, but I think it still paints the picture of when these three things come together, not one, not two, when these three things come together, this is our discipleship window. And so at Crossroads, we needed some buckets so that we could say, this is where we believe it happens the most. And this is how we can do better at these things or set some goals or lean into a space or two that maybe we feel like we're weak in. It's kind of like, um, have you guys ever made bread before? I know, I just said that so you know that I have. I have made bread before, and uh, I used to a long time ago. One of the things that always scared me was, will, will the bread rise? <laughs> you just don't know, and you hope, and you pray, and you put it in a warm place, and you cover it with a towel, and you're just hoping it rises, because if it didn't, you just wasted, not minutes, hours of your time. And I, I came across this way to like ensure the dough is going to rise, which was you can kind of feed the starter, if you will, you can bloom the yeast. And it takes three things to do that, right? Um, you have hot water, and it's got to be like at 100 to 110, too hot, you burn the yeast, and it kills it too cold, it's not going to activate it. Two, you got to have sugar or something, and it ends up to feed on it. Three, you got to have the yeast itself. Here's my point. It's simply, if you have one or two of the three, it's probably not going to work like it should. If you have one or three, it definitely won't. If you have all three, what you see is the start of something beautiful that will rise with the dough and, and, and build into what you're trying to do in the first place. That's what these three buckets are for discipleship. And as we know ourselves, and as we know God, and as we make his name known, we need all those three, and it's not necessarily linear. They're all happening at the same time, again and again. It's not like, I need to know myself before I can know God, and then I need to have those things in place before others know that I'm a follower of Jesus. So this is the best version of God. And this is the best version of God, I can say, that's why I need God, right? It's this idea that all these three things happen at the same time and in the same space, and they feed off one another to create disciples. And that's what the church was created for. That we might look more like Jesus because his good is our good. And he can save and we can't. So it's a conversation about how we do that. And so realistically just, you know, boots on the ground, what's that going to look like at, at Crossroads? Um, it's just right now going to look like a language that we adopt. Because we feel like we need a commonality of language for a reference point. And then it's probably going to look like some things that we do as we say, hey, we feel like we do one really well and not one really well. It's going to look like things that we do around here because we believe this is where discipleship happens. One of those ways, if you um, look at the three categories we had, is we're going to start a series on kind of the church and the purpose of the church found in Colossians 1 next week. And I'm going to start writing uh, study guides for it. And they're going to be along the construct of know, feel, do. What do we know about this passage and about God? What do we feel about these things? And how does it prompt us to action? Because we want to know ourselves and God. We want to make his influence known. So it's going to change the language that we talk about. So that when we talk about these things together, we're on the same page. 
so we can have a conversation about how well are we doing at showing people Jesus? Because that's why we're here. Because strip away the lights and strip away the balloons and strip away the screens and the band and all the stuff that we have and the microphones. And when it comes down to at the end of the day, when Jesus came to start, it was 11, 12 people. And he walked through for three years. He says, let me show you there's a better way. That's discipleship. It's incremental and it's difficult, but it's worth it. And so we want to be a church that uses the lights and the balloons to our advantage, but to the point where it doesn't overshadow, it builds into our ability to look at our friends and family and neighbors and say, you know what? You need to see how good Jesus is. Because that's why we're here. That's why we have small groups. That's why we wake up on Sunday mornings and miss the start of the Cowboys game. God bless all of you, you know? So I want to end today with a quote by C.S. Lewis really, for me, provides perspective and purpose uh, of why we gather and what discipleship is about. He says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose, so that he might point back to the fact that God saves. May we look more like Jesus and do the same. Discipleship, the crossroads. We pray for us this worship a little bit. God, I'm so thankful. Man, I'm so thankful that discipleship is a process and that it's hard. May you give me the grace of friends and family to help me out. I, I'm thankful that you use us in the process of pointing people to something better because I'm broken. I pray that today as we leave, uh, you just give us a passion showing Jesus to our friends and family. Gives the passion for looking more like Jesus, for knowing ourselves and knowing God and allowing his influence to build in our world because ultimately we need it. God, I just pray that you give us a joy as we look more like Christ, as we become disciples every single day. So we pray these things in his name.